I'm awesome. How are you? You had to think about that. Well, you know, I always think, should I be honest or should I just like sound positive? Part of me thinks being honest is important because it demonstrates academics are human and have bad days and bad days are okay. I don't know. I think academics tend to tell you about their bad days more often than not. We tend to like talk about the stress of our lives so much. I'll be honest with you. I'm just a little fried because I overassigned reading to my own students and realized I actually needed to read it. And so <gasps> yes. I have been rapidly digesting seven articles that I assigned for tomorrow by listening to them at one and a half speed while following along. <laughs> one and a half speed. Can you comprehend it at that speed? Oh, yeah. I listen to everything at one and a half speed. Podcasts, uh, audiobooks. Yeah, one and a half speed is my limit. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to start But otherwise, it's good. Down to like 0.5 speed for me to truly comprehend what's going on. 0.5 speed is slower than I read. You'd find you find if you if you try to read along and listen, normal speed is slower than you tend to read. One and a half speed and maybe a little bit faster is the rate that I normally read. But that's I feel like that's a difference between kind of visual learners and audio learners. Yeah. Because I definitely comprehend far better if I'm physically reading versus listening. Right. So I read and listen simultaneously. No. Oh my gosh. I couldn't handle it. Too much sensory input. So the only problem is when it reads all the citations. <laughs> and I'm just kind of like, that. that's hilarious. Oh, oh my gosh. This is the part where I want to, I want to hit the fast forward button, but there is no fast forward button. <laughs> I find this hilarious. But I guess this also speaks a little bit to what we're talking about today, doesn't it? Yeah, we're, we're going to be talking about like how you write for people to actually read it. Like humans, like how we read, what people read, how you communicate beyond scientific ease, which I don't think most academic papers are meant for us to read the citations. We tend to skim over them and we write in a style that is not necessarily pleasing to the ear and you've had some recent experience with this have you not yeah and i mean you had a sapiens piece come out over the summer as well i did you you wrote for sapiens i written for sapiens and now i've written for the conversation both of which have editors who help us as scientists write for the lay educated public Caridwin was the, the editor that I worked with for Sapiens. And so to back up a moment, uh, this piece that just came out was about my experience in a powerlifting gym, kind of having anthropology applied to it retrospectively. It was an incredibly emotionally draining piece, and I'm sure anyone who reads it will see why uh, and totally get why. And Caridwin, during the, the process of editing, there was a, a thing she said that made me think about my writing now in general and how it needs to go, is that each paragraph should propel you forward to the next paragraph. And it's all about cutting out the fat, leaving in the meat, and making sure you are driving a person to want to continue from that one paragraph to the next paragraph. And so now I've started to think about that even within my academic writing and not necessarily for the public writing the way Sapiens is. Because it should be the same way. It should be just as accessible, whether it's on Sapiens or it's in AJHB or AAPA. I'm having similar experiences. I want to write more clearly in general for academic audiences. Some of the vernacular 
the use of you and we in almost uh, trying to pull someone into the conversation is something that I'm struggling with in the book I'm writing. Like, what's the voice that I want to use? I definitely don't write like that when I write for peer-reviewed journals. But the piece that I have coming out tomorrow, which is about my tattooing research and immune response, the editor definitely shaped it to be a conversation. And the magazine's called The Conversation, so it makes sense. But the paragraphs, for the most part, were one to three sentences and really very, very concrete. Yeah. So a lot of my logical gaps were filled in. In other words, the way I write, I sort of explain things, but I don't like come back and go, and this is why I said this last paragraph. You just say it. Which is what we did in this one. It's like, and that is why we did this research method. And in reading it, and it, it reads so well, it's like, oh, I think my mother-in-law might get it, which is the objective. Which is another episode in our series, our academic series. Are we interviewing my mother-in-law? No, not about your mother-in-law. Oh. We might. Is your mother-in-law a wonderful science communicator? No. No. So we will not be inviting her on. However, our guest today is a wonderful science communicator. Oh, you meant today's academics. Yeah, today yeah. we're going to be talking to... <laughs> Why we're talking right now, not oh, to right, our right, own right. work. <laughs> today we're talking to an actual journalist, not just scientists who play journalists on podcasts. And not even play journalists. <laughs> oh, yeah. We know what we can be called as playing at this point. <laughs> anyway, so today's guest... It's Kate Wong. It's Kate Wong. So who's Kate Wong? So Kate Wong, I don't know her personally. I have tweeted with her, but I have read her work for several years now because she is a journalist who writes about biological anthropology and evolution for Scientific American. So I've been familiar with a lot of the work she's done on new finds in paleoanthropology. She has a book that she published in conjunction with Donald Johansson in 2010 called Lucy's Legacy. So she's, uh, she's, been around and knows the big scholars in our discipline and has worked very closely with them. And she is actually who I wanted to be when I went back to college because I went back to college after having seven years off, majoring in journalism, minoring in anthropology to do exactly this type of writing. Science journalism, which is what we need more of. We need more of it by people who actually have read the research articles and talked to the people. And also just from the people who have done the research. We need to be better at, you know, making the message ourselves. Yeah. Turns out it's kind of hard, but you know. Hard. <laughs> so hard. All right. Shall we bring her on? Let's bring her on. All right. Kate, are you there? I'm here. So I'm Chris. And I'm Kara. Hi, Chris. Hi, Kara. Nice to meet you both. Nice to meet Hi. you. Thanks for joining us on the pod. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So we like to start the podcast pretty similarly from one episode to the next of just trying to get to know our guest, who is you today. Uh, and we kind of like to know your origin story. So you are a science journalist for Scientific American. What was your journey to get to that point? And was that always the end goal? My journey was totally random. You know, I when I went to college, I kind of went in with an interest in biology. And I just kind of thought that the only way I could do anything with that was to become a doctor. So I was on the pre-med track. I started out at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And after a few semesters there, I ended up transferring to the University of Michigan 
And I was still pre-med. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Wolverine. All roads seem right? to lead to Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> and when I, you know, when I got there, I had by that point taken a couple of, you know, like a primatology class and a physical anthropology class at, at, at UMass Amherst. And then when I got to Michigan and I was still thinking I wanted to do pre-med, but I started really sucking at the physics and the organic chemistry requirements. I mean, things got pretty bad and they kicked me out. And then I was like, okay, I need to get my act together. And I realized when I looked back at my sort of track record that I was killing it in the bioanth stuff and, and other biology. And it just so happened that they had this major that was biological anthropology and zoology. And so I switched over that. I was like, hey, can you, will you guys let me back in if I switch over? And I think that that's really going to change things. And they said, okay. When was yeah, this? I, Maybe you guys crossed paths. Yeah, I'm so curious. Well, so I graduated from Michigan in, in 96. Okay, so definitely not. But you would have had Milford yeah. Wolf. That's right. I did. John Matani, was he there as well? Oh, yeah. I took a class with John also. Yeah. So we had yep. all the same professors, just, you know quite a bit apart, <laughs> like almost 10 years apart. <laughs> wow, wow. Okay, so you were there 10 years after me. Uh, yeah, I graduated in 07. Got it. Interesting. I love when all these people come on and we've had like the same anthro mentors at Michigan. It's always fun. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, those guys really influenced an awful lot of people. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So then everything was great, and I was really interested in the paleoanthro stuff that I was learning about and then all of a sudden it was time to graduate and so I found myself in the situation of wondering okay do I, I like this paleoanthropology stuff do I go to grad school for that or do I kind of like check out the real world for a while and, and see how this feels so ultimately I decided I needed to work uh, for a while and, and I was not ready to commit to five plus years of doing a PhD and I was going through ads, classified ads, in the New York Times with a red Sharpie. So, you know, this is like Stone Age job hunting stuff. And I saw an ad for a fact checker and photo researcher at a science magazine, unspecified. And I applied for it. And it turned out to be Scientific American. And that was in um, 1997. You got my yeah. job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty early on, like... A month into it, I found out that the physical anthropology meetings were happening in St. Louis. So this is 97, the meetings are in St. Louis. And I really wanted to go, and I had never done that as an undergraduate because it had never occurred to me that that was maybe something that one could do. And I got it into my head, like, I should go, I should go, I should go. Maybe they'll let me go cover it for the magazine. But I had no credentials whatsoever as a journalist. I had no clips. I had no track record at all. And so understandably, the news editor declined my offer to go cover the event for the magazine. <laughs> but I really, really wanted to go. And my dad generously gave me some frequent flyer miles so I could go out to St. Louis. And I put the hotel on my credit card bill and had to like pay it off for the next 10 years. <laughs> and um, you know, I went there and I found a story, and it was about a fossil of Marodopithecus, a Miocene ape. And I came back and I wrote a thousand-word proposal for a 750-word story. And the news editor said, you know what, you can do this. This, this is good. Go write the story. 
And so that was the beginning. And, you know, as time went on, he let me write more and more of these stories. I did them all on my own time, nights and weekends, um, because technically I was supposed to be working as a fact checker and a photo researcher. And eventually, you know, when a, when a writing job became available, I was encouraged to apply for that. That's cool. I was, I sort of joked that you got my job, but in fact, I was at Brooklyn College for journalism and I had to choose a minor and I wanted to write for National Geographic or Discover or something like that. As a dropout, after seven years, when I went back, that's what I went back for. And that's around the time that I went back. So yeah, we were in the city at the same time and you took my job. I was uh, maybe I was looking in the wrong I was looking in the village voice no in fact actually I remember no I was kidding I was looking in the New York Times I've never lost that interest and Kara and I we opened up the pod talking about our own recent efforts to write for the public and that's why we wanted to have you on as well as someone who does this professionally on a regular basis, writing about the subjects I've always wanted to write about for the public and that we're now trying to get to, we wanted to hear how you do it and and how others can do it. But first, because uh, you do get to go to conferences, hopefully now on their dime. Yes, now on their dime. (laughs) you, you, You get to interact with lots of us anthropology types and um, I mentioned the book you have with Donald Johansson. So some highfalutin types who, who have yeah. lots and lots of experience. Do you get to travel to their sites and report on what they're doing? And, and who have been some of the favorite people you've worked with or some of your favorite stories? Yeah, like sure. Um, I do get to go sometimes when, I have a, when I'm working on a feature length piece as opposed to a a news piece and features for us are, you know, typically let's say 3000 words as opposed to a news story, which is maybe 500 to 700 words. Then there is often a a chance to go to a site and hang out for a while and watch people in action. Or if it's a sort of profile type piece to go and just spend some time uh, with the subject for a while and, and get to know them. Those are, you know, my favorite kinds of stories to work on. I mean, I I love this stuff as an observer. And the last time I spent any significant amount of time at a site was probably for a piece that I did in, I think it ran in 2017, on um, the discovery of the, the stone tools at Lamekwi in Turkana, in the West Turkana part of Kenya. And these were the, the oldest stone tools in the world. Um, and so I went out and, and hung out with that team, um, led by Sonia Harmond and, and Jason Lewis, Stony Brook, and just like hung with them for two weeks. And it was amazing, you know, for all the years that I had been writing about human origins, um, that was my first time, you know, in the Rift Valley, seeing the geology, seeing like how they figure out that these tools, which also like PS had no idea how incredibly subtle <laughs> the indicators are of those of those being tools. Um, so you know, it's it's fabulous to to get to see that. There's nothing there's nothing like seeing it firsthand um, and and sort of going through with the researchers how they find this stuff, how they figure out how old it is, how they know that this lump of rock is a stone tool fashioned by an early human and not just some random chunk of rock. Um, Those were amazing things to see. 
and to really get a sense of, you know, it's hard, it's hard work, as you guys know, but it's maybe sometimes not as well understood by by the public. You know, it's a it's a slog going out there in really hot temperatures and dealing with snakes and scorpions and just the, the slog of getting through um, all of the, the overburden at a site and, and into the productive uh, parts of the site. And, you know, it, it just, it gave me a real appreciation for the work. And I hope I was able to con- convey that to um, my readers in, in the piece that I wrote. So what was, uh, what's been a favorite of yours? There are, I would say, I mean, there's a lot of them, but, you know, going to Flores in Indonesia and seeing the, the hobbit remains, the, the bones of Homo floresiensis in Jakarta, and then going to Flores to see the site, the cave where they have found uh, those remains was really amazing. I did that in, I think it was 2008 for a follow-up story to, since they had been, I think the first papers came out in 2004 and then... There was another round of papers and um, lots of ongoing research. So I, I went down around 2008 to do a sort of follow-up story on what those guys were finding. And, you know, that was amazing. It was amazing to hold that teeny tiny little Amothlerisiensis skull in my hand and just see uh, with my own eyes how tiny it was, how fragile it was, how, you know, all the traits that everybody was fighting about, are they, you know, are they some kind of super primitive set of traits that are on there are they are they features that could be indicators of disease in a in what is actually a modern human there was there was just a lot to look at and you know this is a kind of like a side note but some of the sites that I've been to and the and the fossils that people have shown me these are things that unfairly uh, like actual researchers sometimes don't have access to. Mm-hmm. And so that point was kind of underscored to me. I mean, yeah. that, that was something that I, nobody was like voluntarily bringing it up, but that was something that, that I thought about a lot in these situations was, wow, you know, like I'm getting to see something that other people who actually need to study it don't have access to. And that's kind of messed up. I feel like this is a theme that we've heard actually quite a bit in this podcast of all the stuff that doesn't make it into publication. Mm. of all the work that goes into a field site and the slog to get in, slog to get out, difficulties of access, all of those things. So many people we have interviewed, the podcast has become the outlet to tell those stories from the field because it's not okay to include those in academic publications. So much context to what actually happens in the field. So I'm really glad because you're one of those people who can do that for us as you can, you can bring the voice to the, the whole experience, not just, the results, the quantitative results. And so I appreciate that. And so thank you. I'm glad to do it. But you know, the other thing is, and maybe we can get to this later in our conversation, is that in fact, most of my job is working with scientists themselves to write articles for our magazine about their own work. And let me know if you want to just kind of like table this for now, but maybe we can eventually talk about this idea of like, that's something I actually want them to do in their articles that they write for Scientific American is tell us like tell us about the blood sweat and tears like you know people want to know that you're a human being and that this is hard and that you know there are struggles and there are like a lot of really bad days before there's a good day and working with the editor for sapiens was really illuminating into that process so i say dive right in go ahead tell us about how that process works one how you like i guess pick somebody or contact you how does that even start 
Good question. So I think that for a long time, there's been this perception. Well, first, let me back up for a second. You know, Scientific American, one of our sort of like distinguishing characteristics as a magazine is the, the, the majority of our feature length articles are written by the scientists who've done the research. Hmm. And, you know, every once in a while, there's a journalist contributed feature like something that I write. But most of the time, I am looking for scientists to write stories about their work, and then I'm helping them through our sort of intensive editing process um, to produce this shiny, pretty, uh, engaging article for a general audience. And so, you know, I mean, I'm looking at skimming the journals, I'm going to a few meetings in the areas that I track the most closely, and, you know, keeping an ear to the ground um, for stuff that's new and exciting. And, you know, I'd say an ever shrinking percentage of, of our features sort of originate as pieces that, that the editors decide like, hey, I want to go, I want to go get this. Um, and we're going to find this person and we're going to get them to do it. But, you know, we're, we're also getting uh, researchers coming in and saying to us, you know, this is, this is something I'd like to do. Like, what do you guys think? You know, and they're, they're actually pitching us their stories. And so, and that's what I like to see. And that's what I always try to tell researchers when I have their ears, like, don't sit around waiting for us to come to you because there's a lot going on. And if it's not in like, you know, one of the big, big journals that we're routinely sort of like checking out, then we might miss it. And it doesn't mean that we're not interested. We just don't know about it. So first thing is that people should come to us if they think they have something that, that a general audience would be interested in and that they would like to write about. Or if they think that they would rather have a journalist come write their work, you know, we're, write about their work, we're open to that kind of. I'm just going to say, I've talked to Nat Geo and Vox and I don't know, Karen and I both do a lot of SciComm, so we've had we've had a few opportunities to talk to journalists about what makes a good pitch. But I'm I'm curious then if you're out looking for folks like us, yeah, how do we get your attention? What's a good pitch? Yeah. There's a sort of common theme in the pitches that don't work out. And maybe that's like a good place to start. And that is that people and journalists do this too. It's not just scientists. Um, we get pitched a topic. Okay, like Neanderthals. Do you want an article on Neanderthals? What is it about Neanderthals? Like, what is the one sentence point of the story that you want to tell that's going to be surprising and timely? And, you know, like, we need to have a reason why we're doing this article now. We need a sense of what was the sort of previous understanding of this particular debate or whatever it is that you're talking about. And how does your new evidence sort of change that? We want a sense in a proposal of what the arc of the story you want to tell is going to be. And it needs to really be an arc, not a laundry list of 10 interesting things about X. So I think it really helps to think about it from the outset in those sorts of terms. Like try to figure out like what kind of story are we talking about here? Are we talking about, you know, for decades, everybody thought this. And my evidence actually suggests this completely different Thing. Or is it a story that might unfold along the lines of, actually, this has been this huge gaping hole in our knowledge forever, and finally we're getting a little bit of information that helps to fill that gap. And here's what it means, and here's how you know we're interpreting it. So just kind of figuring out that sort of rough template of what kind of story you're telling, 
and then answering like very succinctly or anticipating um, in your proposal, you know, what those sort of basic editor questions are going to be like, what is this? Why should I care? How does it change what we thought we knew about X? Those things all need to be in a proposal and that can be done really quite quickly in just a few paragraphs. It doesn't have to be this hugely uh, time intensive thing, but the information has to be there. So this episode is part of a series we're doing for the podcast called Hackademics, uh, which is kind of hacks for academics, where we talk about some lesser known topics that people should be talking about, and then some topics that people really want to hear about. Uh, And one of them is science communication. There's a greater and greater call for science communication among scientists. And a lot of that burden is actually put on junior academics rather than senior academics because we're much more, I guess, capable with social media and things like that. But that doesn't mean we have the training for it. Um, right. Because our advisors haven't done that sort of thing. So one thing I'd love for you to kind of talk people through and maybe give some advice is just about that writing process. So if you have you know, young scholars wanting to write blog posts or some form of written science communication, what does your process look like for Scientific American? And, and you know, what can we take from that and apply to our own work? Right. So I think there are probably things that are helpful about my process and that are kind of like toxic about my process, but we can just talk about it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds familiar. (laughs) The first sort of rule that I try to follow is to really do the reporting as much as I can before I start writing, because you don't really know what the story is until you've done reporting. That sounds like kind of an obvious thing, but there's this temptation, I think, sometimes, uh, depending on your deadline and all kinds of things, where you just think you already know what the story is. But I think, you know, a lot of the time, it's just, it's just better if you do all your reading, interview all your people, you know, and, and really sort of think about all of that before you actually start to write. That being said, sometimes I've done that, and then started writing and then realized, oh, my God, I have no idea about whatever, and, and I need to go talk to these people. I think for me, the reporting is really fun because I like learning about all these things. And then the writing is like a, a really awful hell. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's really tortured and like a lot of self-loathing and imposter syndrome. I actually think that a lot of that has helped make my work better, but it doesn't make it pleasant. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I just tend to spend like 90% of the time reporting and maybe 10% of the time actually writing. And somewhere in there, there's an awful lot of time that's procrastinating, but I don't know like where that's really kind of falling on either side of that divide. So I'm not a great role model for that, but I actually think a lot of writers have these kinds of weird anxieties about about doing, you know, the thing that they signed up to do <laughs> for, their, for their income. You mentioned, especially important in the pitch, is the arc, the story arc. Yeah. And that's not typically something we always think about, given academic writing styles. And so this might be but the wrong... But we should. But we should. No, exactly. We should. And so this might be the wrong question, considering you just said you hate your process and it's tortured. But how to start thinking in a story arc? You know, I tend to find that with my own writing, it works out best this way. And I often see this with other pieces, pieces that I'm editing, is it when in doubt go in chronological order. Mm. And even if you're not in doubt, 
you might want to go in chronological order. <laughs> That's not to say that you're starting off, you know, a hundred years ago and like working your up to present your way up to present day. Because if you look at the structure of any sort of popular magazine article, you're going to have the sort of top of the story with your lead that might just be this like scene setting thing, or it might be a historic thing, or it might be whatever. But the point of the that sort of first in an article like ours, first few hundred words is to, you know, draw the reader in and quickly get like orient them and tell them in a few paragraphs what your story is going to be about. Um, so it's not unlike, I guess, an abstract to a technical paper, but it's written in a much friendlier way. Um, and then after that first section, then you get into chronological order. And that, for me anyway, has made things a lot easier. And I think it's kind of foolproof. It doesn't mean it's the only way to do it, but it's a good way to do it. And so you can, you know, you might start off in like, here's some background on history of inquiry into this question that I ultimately want to tell you my, my answer to or how my results figure into. Um, tell us a little bit about that background so that we, as the readers, can then appreciate the significance of the findings that you're going to then talk about. And, you know, I think another sort of, this is kind of, I'm kind of going all over the place right now, but um, another thing that I often see in manuscripts that I receive from my scientist authors is there's a lot of space given to what is effectively the methodology. Mm -hmm. And we want some of that in an article for a popular audience, but the weight has to be shifted. We don't, we can't, yeah, I mean you've got the, the sausage analogy in the title of your <laughs> podcast. Like we, we can't spend all the time there because we want to get to dessert right. and dessert is like what you found and mm -hmm. what it means. Yeah. And it's sort of the inverse of like a lot of the technical papers that I see, you know, I run a, a science communication workshop fairly regularly and I, I make the people taking the workshop explain their work in two minutes and then they have to cut it down to one minute and then they have to cut it down to 30 seconds and they quickly realize that in the two-minute version, they're spending 90 seconds on methods that 98% of the public doesn't give a damn about. And it's always yeah. the what and the why it's important and the why should I care? How does it affect me? Yes. Uh, and that's a huge eye-opener to most scientists because we get so lost in the forest. We, we mm -hmm. get caught up in the yeah. trees and forget to take a step back. So I'm really glad you brought that up. No, I honestly see that in even presentations where lots of stats ex explanations make us all sleepy mm -hmm. and, and then we miss the dessert or it's not even there. And I like that metaphor a lot, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to actually know what's in the sausage. Just eat the sausage <laughs> and get us to dessert. Yep. I mean, I wouldn't want to sell it short. You know, we, we need, we do want in our articles, we do need to give the audience a sense of how you figured out what you figured out, how you know what you know. But after you've done that, what's really interesting is the, here's what it means. And, and also, here's what we're looking at next. Here are the, here's the whole new batch of questions that our research has raised. And like, here's what we, we, you know, the most interesting ones that we want to pursue next and how we're going to do that. So I'm always encouraging my scientist authors to, to like show us a little bit about that. I mean, a lot of them are sort of cautious, like, oh, I can't like show all my cards like that. You know, <laughs> science is competitive. But 
some of that is okay for a general audience. You know, you're, you're not giving it all away um, to the point where you have to worry about somebody scooping you. Uh, it's just keeping things interesting, like showing readers how vibrant um, and exciting science is. What are you working on right now? Do you have anything, uh, any scoops up your sleeve you can share with us? Because by the time this comes out, you will probably have published them. Well, the piece that I just finished is not an anthropology piece. Well, we just have to hang up right now. <laughs> we can talk we're out. Done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is a, an evolution piece. So okay, we're off the hook then. I can just tell you briefly about it. it. It's basically about the discovery that songbirds, which are the most speciose group of birds, I think they account for more than half of all bird species. It turns out they all have this weird extra chromosome that birds in all the other groups do not have. So the piece kind of just looks at the discovery of this weird extra chromosome and like some hints about the genes that are on it and the question of whether or not this might help to explain songbird diversity. Uh, which has been a question that, that bird evolutionary biologists have been really interested in getting to the bottom of for a long time. Hmm. What's weird is that birds have really small genomes as it, uh, on the whole, and there are various ideas for why this might be, but whatever the reason, having an extra chromosome, you know, obviously would have given them more sort of material for natural selection to work on than non-songbirds. So, it's weird and it's super interesting and I was kind of excited about it. Did this one involve a field trip? This one did not. This was, this was all telephone and email and um, it had to come together pretty quickly. So yeah, no travel on this one. <laughs> but th this isn't a good example of why I did actually want to be a science journalist once upon a time because you have lots and lots of good stories that make yeah. you sound like you just know a shit ton about everything. You probably do. Yeah, I have a silo that I have a deep knowledge of, and I'm just waiting for someone to ask me about that one thing. What I wanted to say is one of the pushes in journals, and we talked about this with Bill Leonard, who's the editor for American Journal of Human Bio, and we've heard this at conferences, is peer-reviewed publications need to have versions of, of summaries that are at different levels that there are take-homes that people at various you know, levels of interest and understanding can appreciate, but we as the writers, the, the scientists, need to get in the practice of writing those and not depend on others to do it for us or it won't, it won't happen. I think that makes a lot of sense. And to the extent that scientists are participating in social media, like Twitter and Facebook, and talking about their work there, it's great to be able to tailor your message for these audiences who are, who are consumers of your work, but with coming from very different kinds of backgrounds. So do you have any final advice for folks out there, scientists, listeners, grad students? We have a lot of grad students who listen who might be thinking about submitting a piece for Scientific American or writing for a popular audience? Yeah, I mean, so every once in a while, somebody will ask me to come and talk to their class about science communication, writing for a general audience. And I always just tell them, like, put yourself out there. And, and if you think you have something, whether it's something you want to write about or something that you think a journalist would be interested in covering, like, don't hold back. Just, like, put it out there and like, 
you know, if the worst thing that can happen is that you don't get a response and, you know, and even then it's probably not because your work is uninteresting. It's just that we get lots of pitches, but we don't know that your work exists um, necessarily if you, if you don't come and tell us. So put yourself out there. And, you know, I think one of the things that I see with, with scientists who I work with is, and I'm, I totally understand where this is coming from. Um, there, there's, when we go through the process of editing and I'm telling them, okay, we've got to simplify this or we can't, like this part's getting boring. We need to figure out a way to like, you know, make this more interesting or there's often a sort of anxiety of, that I think what comes down to, well, what are my colleagues going to think of this? This isn't the sort of language that I communicate in. This isn't how I would like talk about it with them. And I just you know, remind them like, this is not for your colleagues. At most 10% of our audience are scientists. You know, in the beginning I was, really worried about that as a journalist, but one who had come out of an anthropology program. Well, what are people, what are the researchers going to think about this? But, you know, you get that drill out of you pretty quickly. It's not, you know, that's not who your your obligations are to as, as a journalist or as a scientist writing for the public. Your obligation is to your readers and your readers in, when you're writing for my magazine or a number of other outlets are not your colleagues. And, and you have to really kind of like be committed to that idea and deal with your subject matter appropriately. Uh, so Kate, if people are interested in getting a hold of you, how can they do that? Social media, email, what's the best way? Yeah, my direct messages are open on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is just my name, K-A-T-E-W-O-N-G. It's real simple. And so people can get in touch with me that way. They can email me. It's just my first initial K, last name Wong, W-O-N-G, at Siam, S-C-I-A-M dot com. And I'm happy to send out our proposal guidelines or just talk about whatever folks are working on that they think we might be interested in. Awesome. Carol, what about you? Are you easy to get a hold of like that? Yeah, actually really easy to get a hold of. Uh, I am at Kara Akabak on Twitter, and I believe my email is cakabak at nd.edu. I think you're right. I actually have it memorized. And I also am easy to get a hold of, at least by email. It's, you have to know my middle name, D, as in Dana, L-Y-N-N at ua.edu, or on Twitter at Chris underscore L-Y, which is slightly less intuitive. But Nonetheless, we are the Sausage of Science for the Human Biology Association. Like us and share us and rate us so that all your friends can hear these amazing podcasts. And bow down at the throne of our producer, Caroline Owens, who makes us sound articulate and all that stuff. Thank you, Kate. Thank you so much. Send me your pitches. (laughs) If if nobody else does, you'll hear from us. (laughs) All right. Great. Thank you. you.